This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hello, Joe Lauder here with you for the Hack podcast. I've got a statistic for you that blew my mind. Chronic loneliness can be as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's like half a packet of cigarettes. Stick around because I've got this really interesting and fantastic chat coming up about young people and loneliness and the ways that we can find meaningful connection and community in the modern world. It's actually, it's really heartwarming and I can't wait for you to listen to it. Also, how much time have you had in the sun today? Have you had any time out in the sunshine, getting some sun on your skin? You might be listening to this right now in the sun. Well, a lot of Australians are apparently low in vitamin D. And yes, that's the one that you get from the sun. We're going to find out why this is such a problem in a sunny country like Australia and some of the health impacts of not getting enough vitamin D. Hack. Under the Privacy Act, all registered political parties are entitled to contact Australians via text. On Triple J. Yeah, have you been getting text messages already about the Voice to Parliament referendum? There's been a message that's been going around from Coalition Senator Jacinta Numbergimba-Price from the No campaign. It's got a link in it which says that it's going to a page where you can register for a postal vote. And a lot of people are already getting frustrated with these kind of text messages. And they also raise heaps of questions about this kind of political messaging And it's very lucky because I've got someone to answer those questions who is an expert in this space. But first, if you've been getting these messages, let me know on 0439757555. Also, where you're from, I'm really interested about that as well, um, if that plays into this kind of thing. I've got Dr. Andrew Hughes with me. He's a political marketing expert from the Australian National University. Andrew, welcome to Hack. Welcome and thanks, Joe. Just to start with, are these messages legal? They are. This is the really sad thing to say to people because so many people hate them um, is that they are legal. They're legal because political communications are outside both the Spam Act and the Privacy Act. And so, therefore, they get around the law. And believe it or not, too, despite the attempts of many people from the crossbench like Zali Stegall and David Pocock and even the Greens have tried in the past, um, they, the most of the major parties have um, not closed that loophole where these messages are allowed. So politicians are allowed to spam us, basically. They are, yes. I hate saying it again. It it sounds so terrible because most people hate this. Um, And the modern age of marketing too, we have permission marketing where most people will say they opt in to communications or opt out of communications. Uh, Political parties don't have the same rules and yet they should, but at the same time that means then they can do messaging like this and the reason why it can be effective, that's the thing. This is what I do it for. So um, in 2016 when Clive Palmer did um, his first sort of trial um, of messaging, he then ramped it up in 2019 where he sent, wait for it, 5.6 million SMSs (laughs) out to people in that election campaign. I I remember, (laughs) Oh, yeah, right? And and guess how many people clicked on them? 220,000. So it's around effectiveness rate around 5%. Now, SMS traditionally gets around 1% or 2% of people responding. But in politics, we've seen around 5 maybe up to 10% of late. So it's a high number, and that's what they do it for. But is so it really it effective? Yeah, that's my Yeah, see? No, it doesn't. That's the thing, because oh. it makes us really angry. So what it does is the people who might support that campaign already – they love it, right? They go, yeah, this is great. But the people you need to win over to an election cam- campaigns go, you know what? Stop it. Enough. I've had enough. Don't do this anymore. I don't like you. 
And if you keep on doing it, I'm going to hate you even more. People against you. So that's the reason why. And the other reason they do it is, wait for it, this is really nasty and I hate saying this as well, is to get the fatigue factor involved. So you switch off. They call it the switch off factor. Oh, so basically, like if I do enough of this, you'll switch off any and all communications. Yes, yeah, see? And this is a very um, emerging thing with the voices that we have this fatigue factor coming. Well, we've talked about it for so much already that some people go, enough already. I've had enough. I've made my mind up already. Don't talk to me anymore. And I don't care what you send me, be you yes or no. And they switch off altogether. Heaps, so this is what they're going for as well. Heaps of people on the text line have been getting it. Someone says, yep, I received the message you, you speak of. Interestingly, my phone picked it up as spam. Kylie from New South Wales from Padstow says, yes, I got a message from Jacinta. Someone else in Western Sydney says they got one. Ben in Melbourne says, yeah, I got one. I thought it was someone I knew at first. Um, Andrew, where would they be getting people's numbers from? Uh-huh. So this is one of the callers before said about spam. Um, this is where they get their phone numbers from. It's from a marketing database. And so they're sent by a program which marketing companies use to send mass messages, which brings the cost down to maybe like one cent or even lower than one cent per message. So in terms of cost effectiveness, very cheap to do. Um, and that's what I do it as well. It, compared to, say, running a TV ad or other types of marketing where the cost can be higher, they can get higher effectiveness out of this. So they get your number out of... When you opt in, as I said before, to those marketing programs, you sign up to something, there's always a little box at the very end, which most people don't read, which says you consent to third-party organisations mm. being able to access your information. And third-party organisations are usually these marketing agencies who then will sell your information onto these campaigns. We call that list-based marketing, where basically they get a, a whole list of numbers and even some other details, and then away they go. And it's really, really full on when it's done like this. Um, as you mentioned before, in the previous election, Clive Palmer sent text messages to pretty much everybody in the country, or a very, very, very significant number of people. Is this the same here? Is everybody going to get it? Or do you think it's happening in a bit more of an intentional or targeted way? Uh, I think it's targeted at the moment because not everyone's got one. In in uh, 2019 um, and even 2022, when some people got them from different political parties, um, it seemed to be a lot more widespread. So in other words, they might go for a whole range of numbers between, let's say, for argument's sake, 0412 and 0439. And no matter who you were, if you're on that sort of list of numbers, you're going to get a message. This time around, I think they're doing a little bit more targeted. So maybe in areas where they believe there might be um, the soft yes and they're targeting those people to get come across the no. So at the moment, it's very subtle, um, but they're going to ramp it up to maybe where all of us will get one or it might be like Clive Palmer-esque. In the message, it says the link is for people to access postal votes. But then if you go through to the link, it sends people to a website authorised by the Liberal Party and then it gets people to provide their contact details to apply for a postal vote. What do you think about that? Is that legal if it says it's an application for a postal vote, but it goes to a Liberal Party website? I think it's very, very close to not being legal. It's up to the AEC ultimately to decide. Um, the thing about the AEC is where they cross the boundary is whether you're misleading people on how they can vote or the method of voting. So that's what the AEC is really concerned about. This time around, though, they do have truth and advertising laws running for the referendum. Um, the thing is, though, about truth and advertising laws is that they're always reactive and never proactive. So that means that's only after a message is seen by someone, then does someone react to it and go, hey, hang on, that's a little bit misleading. Do they do something about it? But by then it's too late. They've already got the effect they are after, which is your eyeball 
eyeballs on the media. And that's really what they're after here is eyeballs on the media and then you're responding to it. So if that can happen, they're happy. Um, and in this case, I think they might then quickly take it down or stop that messaging. But, of course, the effect's already there and they've already achieved what they're after. We've also heard about the, um, there was a story today about the Yes campaign um, and there were someone who was tracking their advertising was saying that there's already a lot of different messages that are targeting different people in different ways, especially online. Is that becoming more yes. common in terms of like they, they provide a kind of, I guess they profile you online in a certain way and you get a different message depending on the demographic profile that you're put into? Yeah, this is what we're seeing more and more common um, happening with the election campaign. I'll give you one example I know from doing research in um, 2019 where Scott Morrison got up in the federal election. Um, he ran one variation of an ad, wait for it, like 400 different variations wow. of the same ad. And that was just on Facebook. So that's just one method of one platform, one media. We're talking thousands of ads now. Um, the record was Donald Trump. He ran 50,000 in um, his election. Yeah, amazing. Incredible. You just cut out a bit there, but I think you said 50,000 different versions from Donald Trump, which has got to be a record. We've got to move on. But Dr. Andrew Hughes, thank you so much for coming on Hack and having a chat. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Joan. Thanks, everyone, for sending the messages in. That's Dr. Andrew Hughes. He's a political marketing expert from the Australian National University. So many people, I will say, from all across the country have been getting these messages. A lot of people, someone in Melbourne saying, I got a text today. It's so frustrating that you can't opt out. Someone else says, how big is Jacinta Price's phone bill? And someone says, oh, look, on either side, I won't be voting for anybody who is texting me. Hack. You can have connection and it's really normal to have people in your life and still feel lonely. On Triple J. This is Hack. I'm Joe Lauder. I'm going to be hanging out with you for a few more days while Dave Marchese is away. Now, when was the last time you chatted with someone and you just really felt seen by them? And I'm not talking about like a, a chat at the party or like a random kind of kitchen office chat. I want to talk, I'm talking about when you're like genuinely connecting with someone and you had that moment where you're vibing. It's not romantic. It's just like you feel seen, you're connecting. And it's something that we all need as humans. Loneliness has been described all around the world these days as an epidemic. And young people, people in their 20s are feeling it more than any other age group. I want to know if you found ways to connect with people, if you've broken through some of those feelings of loneliness, I'd love to hear how you did it, how you're feeling. Let me know. Send me a text on 0439 757 A new Australian podcast that's been described as a reality podcast is tackling these issues. And what they're doing is they're teaming up young Australians who are feeling lonely with mentors and helping them on that journey. Gemma Spegg is a host of Psychology in Our Twenties and she's also the host of this reality podcast called We Are Lonely. Gemma, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me how this podcast works? Is it like queer eye for the lonely guy is kind of what I had in my mind? That is actually an excellent way of putting it, and I am <laughs> going to steal that that explanation. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. You're helping me out. <laughs> so essentially, it's like a reality documentary podcast, and what it really focuses on is loneliness in young people in Australia. And I think that it's not typically what we think of when we think of a podcast, right? We think of like our Joe Rogans or like our Alex Coopers or, of course, our you know ABC podcasts. <laughs> but really, it's kind of almost like it's a reality show reality show that's incredibly authentic that follows four young people kind of trying to get through life and all the things that they're really dealing with that a lot of us are dealing with as well, I think. 
so many of the feelings that are associated with loneliness are part of what it is to be human and it is very mm. natural and normal to feel these feelings at different points in our lives and you know even different points in the day. Do you feel sometimes or what do you say to the criticism that we're over pathologizing what is otherwise a normal emotional experience as humans? Is it normal or is this a different thing in the 21st century in our modern society? That is such an interesting question because I do think that sometimes psychology and you know general society does pathologize things when perhaps they don't need to be, but in this instance I think it's quite clear that it is a problem, right? Like we're seeing loneliness rise and levels of loneliness increase in such intense numbers and become an experience that is for some people part of their daily routine. And I honestly think that unlike other emotions, loneliness has health consequences that make it a bit more serious and mean that we really should be paying attention to it. One of the studies that we looked at actually in the show is how loneliness, if it's experienced frequently enough and intensely enough, can be as dangerous for your health as something like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or, you know, binge drinking. Like we often think of health as just being physical, but it's also very emotional and mental and they're all kind of intertwined. And I think especially to that point around like loneliness in the 21st century, we really don't have community the way that we used to have. And so many of our interactions are now online. And in some ways that's beneficial. In other ways, it makes us feel really detached and, you know, I feel like talking about the pandemic is a bit of a cop-out, but overall, like, I do think that our society is no longer built around maintaining a sense of connection and maintaining a sense of community. Yeah. How do you explain the paradox that we are living in this hyper-connected society and we we technically have access to our friends 24-7 and we have access to communities 24-7, but all the reports say that we're lonelier than ever? Well, I think that for anyone who lives online or exists online, I think, which is all of us, you'll know that that level of connection for many of us is not as meaningful as being able to sit across from someone and, and really look them in the eye and see the and see them as a person and have them see you as a person as well, like in the flesh. And I don't want to like discredit the the absolute benefits of things like online gaming communities and like chat communities and things like that. Cause I think that is so beneficial, but there needs to be a balance. And when we're only ever communicating, socializing, connecting through very, I would say, you know, shallow means like Instagram or, or Facebook, that's, I don't think going to provide the same benefits as actually seeing your friends in person or feeling like you're doing something with them and building memories. Did you find that there's a common driver or reason or explanation behind each of the participants' loneliness? Or was it very different for everybody? It it was very different, but also very similar. And maybe it sounds counterintuitive to be like, it's a lack of community. But I think for for the majority of the participants, so three in particular, like it was just a lack of community. But then there's also this other feeling of like, there are people around me and yet I don't feel like I can reach out. And I don't want to admit that I'm lonely. And I think that is like the catch-22 of loneliness in a way, in that it is such a solitary experience that we don't want to speak about it, which in turn makes us more lonely. Or to speak about it, we might feel as if we will be stigmatised or that people will think or judge us because it says something about our character. So we kind of just stay stuck in that really solitary place. You've mentioned community a bunch. Is that the opposite of, 
loneliness that we look at if we if it was to be some kind of spectrum is it community and connection on one end and loneliness on the other yeah honestly I love that I love that you've said that because I actually really really agree and I think that the other thing that ties into this is that we're seeing like a massive, obviously, cost of living crisis. And sometimes people don't see how that is related to loneliness. But if you think about what money allows you, it allows you to, you know, go out with your friends and buy drinks or join like community sporting teams that sometimes have an entry fee or to spend money on hobbies or to, you know, do little trips with your friends, drive to see your friends using your car rather than public transport. There are all these little things that are that see are that are connected within broader society and broader social trends and uh, cultural trends and economic trends that are making it so much harder for people to actually connect. Did you find as well that young men and women experience loneliness differently or have different reasons maybe for it? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because I think that a lot of the studies would say that women actually need to see people more often mm. and need to be more more connected, I would say, or have more of those in-person interactions. With my... It's a stereotype a bit as well, I feel. Yeah, it is a bit of a stereotype, actually, but I think that it, it does come from an evidence-based place. And the way that um, I think different genders interact as well and the way that they conduct um, kind of their socialising tendencies that sounds so pathologic so <laughs> so academic we know but, what you mean uh, yeah thanks guys <laughs> but like the way that they that they do that is also so different right and sometimes the the one that the stereotype that we often think of is around alcohol and how men often interact in the presence of alcohol and having a beer or uh, watching a game or something like that. And yeah, that's so stereotypical, but I do think that sometimes that does come through. Whereas women might be more likely to see their friends uh, for things that might be seemingly more productive. What are some of the other tools or strategies that you go over in the podcast to help the participants address their loneliness? So some of the strategies that we went through, which might seem counterintuitive, is actually, how do you feel about yourself when you are alone? And is your company actually something that you're comfortable with? So understanding your values, understanding how much socialising or how much interaction do I actually need? Am I using external events and external opportunities to socialise as a distraction from something going on internally? I think that we often think of loneliness as a problem to be solved out in the world, but sometimes we also need to look a little bit deeper to see, is it really that I'm alone or is it just loneliness as a feeling that isn't actually mimicking or isn't actually reflective of how many people I do have around me. There's that saying, you know, like you can be lonely and not be alone and you can be entirely alone and never feel lonely. Gemma, it's been amazing to chat and congratulations on the podcast. Um, thank you for coming on Hack to Chat About It. Absolutely. Anytime. That's Gemma Spegg. She's the host of Psychology in Your 20s and the host of that reality podcast that we were talking about called We Are Lonely. If that chat's brought up issues for you and you do want to talk to someone about how you're feeling, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. We've been getting so many messages about that chat. Someone, Eva, says, I'm 23 and I've noticed the effect on my mood as a result of detachment and loneliness. My housemate and I recently started a local walking group in Fitzroy North. It's been so lovely. We've met so many people and I've felt such a post-buzz each session. Someone else says, it's really important to note that many of us with chronic illness struggle with loneliness. Nick from Blacktown says, when I moved to Wagga from Sydney for uni, I felt incredibly isolated and alone, but I found an incredibly welcoming and encouraging community group in the on-campus Christian, on Christian group. 
Someone else says, if you don't want to be lonely, put your phone down and play sports, join a club, or do the Aussie thing and go to the pub. You can do it without your phone. And Caitlin in the Gold Coast says, when I was 27, I worked in a FIFO role. I dine out on my own just to combat the loneliness. It helped actually just being surrounded by people. Thanks so much for the messages, everyone. Hack. A surprisingly large number of people are actually vitamin D insufficient or even deficient. On Triple Jack. Yeah. How often would you sit out in the sun and just soak it up and get it on your skin? I reckon most of us think we do, but actually if you work in a warehouse, if you work in an office or if you're working overnight shifts, maybe in hospo, you've actually got a much higher risk of not having enough vitamin D. We were actually talking about this in the office the other day and it turns out actually a lot of us at the Triple J office are vitamin D deficient. So if you're thinking, if you're hearing this and you're thinking like, what even is vitamin D? What does it do? Like, what are the bigger problems here? Well, our reporter Nathan Nigidula has been looking into it for us. You know that feeling when you wake up super tired and you think, man, I must be burnt out or something. I had that happen to me the other day. So I went to my GP and it turns out I didn't just need a holiday. I was low on vitamin D. He told me that because of the pandemic, young men have been missing out on getting enough sunshine and I'd have to take supplements. Now, before this, I'd never even heard of vitamin D. But when I mentioned it to the office, it turns out heaps of other people were also lacking the vitamin. Towards the end of winter, I found out that I was, amongst other things, I was vitamin D deficient. And I'd just come out of a Melbourne winter, so I guess I wasn't that surprised. So I went to my doctor because originally I was feeling really run down, really sluggish. I felt like I was getting sick a little too often. People maybe get one or two colds during the, you know, cold and flu season. I've had three since May alone. I hadn't really thought about the importance of getting a little bit of sun every day on my skin in winter. Also, it's grey and cloudy here, so there's less time to do it. So, what's the deal? Is Gen Z actually low on sunshine? To dispel any myths, I thought I'd speak to an expert. I'm Michael Bonning. I'm a GP in New South Wales, and I'm also president of the AMA in New South Wales. So, Dr Bonning, what is vitamin D? What does it help with? Vitamin D is a hormone that our bodies produce and it helps us to have the right levels of calcium in our body and especially in our bones and helps make sure that our bones are strong. When I told him how many people in the Triple J offices were lacking vitamin D, Dr Bonning was surprised. We usually expect that young people will get reasonable amounts of sun exposure and hence have reasonable levels of vitamin D. People in certain industries, if you work in the hospitality industry and you spend most of your time indoors or in a kitchen, uh, you work in logistics and so you spend all your time inside a warehouse, you work the night shift, all of those things can be much higher risks for vitamin D deficiency. But the good thing is, you don't need a whole lot of spare time to get your vitamin D levels back to normal. And boosting your levels is actually super easy. We know that being in the sun for just 10 minutes a day, but picking those times so that the UV index is low, generally before 10 a.m. and after 4 p.m., are actually great times for you to get some sun exposure to your arms, maybe your uh, legs, And if nothing else, 
at least it's gotten a few people in the office to rethink their habits. I have been pretty consistent in always making time to sit outside. Like even today, when I had my morning coffee, it was quite sunny and I was working from home. So I sat in the backyard in my underwear for like 10, 15 minutes and I feel good. I feel better. So I've started taking a vitamin D supplement, so we'll see how that goes. And I've kind of started a bit of a rule with myself where after my show, I try and get out of the building and just sit in the sun for about 20 minutes. I'm very pale, so I've got to be careful and I've got to make sure I've got sunscreen on, but just trying to get that midday sun, 20 minute fix, and then just get back inside. Hack on Triple J. I was Nathan Nigadula reporting, chatting about his experience with the lack of vitamin D. And yes, that was, <laughs> that was me. Um, yes, I do sit in the backyard sometimes. I get a little bit of sun on my skin. Yes, sometimes I'm in my underwear. Um, but it works, guys. I feel great. I feel really good. But I want to find out a bit more about this and just how prevalent it is. And I've got Dr. Joanna McMillan with me. She's a nutrition scientist. Joanna, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you. And listen, I'm really glad I'm not the only one that sometimes sits in my backyard in their underwear. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, like it literally was a doctor's orders. But um, <laughs> I was pretty surprised because I live in Melbourne. I've been living here for years. I work in an office. No one ever had a conversation with me like a health professional or even people around mm. me. Like I'd never had a conversation about vitamin D levels until I was told I was deficient. And I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. But am I a pretty classic case of vitamin D deficiency that you would hear of? You are. And in fact, there's a lot more. I mean, in the old days, we we thought here in Australia, we'd be absolutely fine with vitamin D because we have so much sunshine. But actually, this is one of the things that has been good about the COVID experience because it really has highlighted just how many people are vitamin D deficient. We're talking about it a lot more. And one of the reasons for that is vitamin D is actually essential for your immune system and for fighting off respiratory infections. So that's why it kind of got the spotlight during, during COVID times. And, you know, we know from Australians, especially those Australians living in more of the southern states where you have less sunshine and especially at the end of winter. So that sort of progression of not getting enough sunlight over winter means that we think around a third of Australians are actually deficient by the time we get to the end of winter, possibly higher in those in those southern states. So it's something we've got to be aware of. Yeah, wow, that's, that's so much higher than I thought, up to a third. Mm. Um, why is this such a problem in Australia? Um, we've already got some messages, some people, and I was really curious about this, some people were saying, it's a double-edged sword because we've had such mm. effective, effective communication around being sun smart and covering up when we're outdoors. Do you think that's a well, factor? Well, that's right. It's definitely a factor. And it's something that even in my circles of nutrition research, you get a little bit of sort of argy-bargy between the researchers who are looking at skin cancer and skin aging and other issues that can happen with, with too much sunshine. And then on the other hand, you've got people who are involved in vitamin D saying, well, hang on, we need, we need a little bit of sunshine. Um, and the truth is that there are, for people who are very high risk, I'm going to pick up something you said in, in the, the, the pack there, yeah. though, was you said something about putting sunscreen on. One of the issues with sunscreen is it also stops you producing vitamin D in your in your skin. Ah. There is one sun cream company I'm aware of that actually has a very particular sunscreen that blocks the harmful UV rays but allows the rays that will allow um, for vitamin D production. So that's a very particular yeah, type of, of sunscreen. That's interesting because literally mm. I was about to ask you that because we've had a bunch of messages about that. Um, someone else says... 
I did a two-year stint in the UK. I went from healthy to being sick and tired all the time. I moved back to Australia, went back to normal. When I spoke about it with my doctor, he said it was probably vitamin D deficiency. You have touched on it a bit, but what are, um, I was reading about like the health impacts and there was a really extreme version saying you can get rickets if you don't get enough sun. <laughs> yes. sound, I mean, that sounded very Victorian, but um, what, what are like some of the other health impacts for people? Well, rickets is what's going to affect children who are still growing. So because we need vitamin D to be able to absorb calcium and also to be able to lay down calcium and other minerals into bone, it's really, really important for bone development. So actually, I mean, I grew up south of Glasgow in Scotland. There's some fantastic old black and white images from Glasgow back in those Victorian days where they literally had cages out of the apartment blocks, out of the windows that they'd put the babies in in order to try and get them to have some sunshine to prevent rickets. Now, today it would be pretty unusual to see someone with a child with rickets, but actually even for us as adults, um, vitamin D is still essential for our bone health, particularly as we get older. And I know you've got quite a young audience here, yeah. but you've got to think about your bones when you're young, because from about the age of, you, you keep build, building your bone density to about age 30, and then it starts to decline. So unless you hit a good peak, you're going to get into trouble later on. So it's really important that throughout right. adult life, as well as when we're growing, we're still thinking about bone health and getting enough vitamin D. Yes, everyone, remember, get some sunshine, do it when the UV rays aren't too strong. We're about to hit the end of the show, but Joanna, thank you so much for coming on Hack. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, anytime. That was Dr. Joanna McMillan, and she's a nutrition scientist. We had so many messages coming in. Someone says, vitamin D is also found in fish, eggs, and dairy products. Another person says, I've changed my habits, such as sitting outside in the sun to do work rather than going to the library each afternoon. Someone else says, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge balancing getting enough vitamin D and avoiding UV skin damage. It is tricky. And Joe says, I'm a shift worker. I work late at night. I get up late in the day. So I try and sit in my outdoor spa for 30 minutes a day and it helps a lot. Joe, that sounds amazing. Um, enjoy that. That's a fantastic way to recuperate after a night shift. That's it for the Hack Podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.